Good morning. How we doing? Good? Good. Hey, it's so good to be here. Uh, I'm grateful for the invitation from uh, Pastor Isaiah and from Nick Pacuary. If you know Nick and Rachel, we've known them for a while now. Uh, we served together uh, in, a, in a church in New Orleans many years ago and been able to reconnect uh, more recently since we're both in the same general area of the world. Uh, if you know them, they're great. Uh, mostly Rachel, but a little bit Nick too, right? Uh, so, so glad, so glad to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm a guest. If you're a guest, this is your first time. Hey, well, we're all here together. Uh, it's been a great experience for me. Thank you so much for the warm welcome from everybody uh, that we've had so far, and I hope that's been your experience as well. So we're in Psalm chapter 5, and uh, Psalm 4, all right, and then rolling into chapter 5, uh, you can classify these two psalms as an evening prayer psalm and then a morning prayer psalm, right? Uh, it's a psalm to go to sleep with, chapter 4, and then a psalm to wake up with. You can actually see it in the text if you have your copy of God's Word, if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. Uh, you can see it, uh, Psalm 4, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In Psalm chapter 5, verse 3, you see it in the text. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I will prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So it's this, this the way the book is arranged. Uh, it rolls from Psalm to 4. It gives, the, the, as in this arrangement, it gives direction and purpose. It functioned that way for centuries for Hebrew readers of the text and those who would recite this and then for centuries for Christian readers and prayers it would function as a evening prayer and a morning prayer and, and if we can really go there we think this morning about about Jesus uh, Psalms like these Jesus would have recited Psalms like these Jesus would have prayed as he walked on earth in the evening and in the morning we know that the Psalms were Jesus's songbook they were his worship hymnal they were also his prayer books. So he would have sung them constantly throughout his life. You see in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you see him quote from these psalms. Uh, he would have known them by heart. And so we think this morning, like a, kind of a, a neat moment, if we think about Jesus walking on earth, we think about Jesus reciting a prayer psalm in the evening and Jesus getting up in the morning and reciting Psalm 5, a prayer for his morning. And so our, really our best efforts this morning as we walk through this together, our best efforts this morning is for this psalm to lead us to Jesus. There's no other place we need to stop. There's no other termination point. Our goal is, is for this to lead us to Jesus this morning. So let's think about ending the day well, and then we'll get over to Psalm 5, starting the day well. Uh, if you're like me, I, I would confess I don't always end the day well. I don't always start the day well. I'm not always the best at being in touch with my feelings, the unique feelings that comes with those times. And maybe think about this morning. Think about uh, the feelings that accompany evening and then morning. And there are, and really if you think about those feelings that accompany evening and morning, there are probably two types of prayers that fit the evening and then the morning. So in the evening, I have this desire to unburden myself. Do you think about that? Do you ever get to the end of the day? Like everyone, uh, we have a lot going on in our lives, uh, leading a church, uh, pastoring a congregation, you call it shepherding a flock, leading a staff. I, I took over as the pastor in January of 2020. 
which means I had about 60 days of normal life uh, going on. Uh, and, and since then, uh, since March of 2020, not a single day has felt normal. And so I go through my day and I think about how, how I shepherd, how I lead, and I ask myself, was that wise leadership or was that weak leadership? Was that strong leadership or was that just arrogant leadership? And you know, with our kids and our family, our kids, our family's largest right over here, people behind our family, if you have like trouble hearing from God's word behind squirming things, you have my, my permission to migrate. I have no formal authority here, but you can, you can move. Uh, and so I think about our family with all their unique needs for life and for love. Uh, we're engaged in foster care and that comes with its own joys and its own sorrows and its own burdens. And it all piles up into everything. And I think about how to end the day well and how to unburden. And my confession to you is that I, I often end the day poorly. We end the day by possibly checking out, doing a quick dinner, a quick bedtime routine, uh, and then quickly moving on to binge watching whatever is on Netflix or, or you know, death scrolling until we fall asleep, right? And so I end the day poorly sometimes. Um, there are days where we end the day well with, with dinner, with a less rushed bedtime routine, with a story, with a catechism, with a prayer, with reading, with an actual conversation as a husband and wife. And then before falling asleep, and I, I'll say I don't have a very robust evening prayer life, uh, simply because the moment that I get very, very still in the evening, I fall asleep. Um, but I do think there are these moments that, uh, that I do have this just simple prayer list in the moments before I fall asleep uh, at night. Um, and I would say, here's my version of evening prayer is just saying back to God, God, here are the things that I don't have any control over. And I make a quick list of them. Uh, here are the things that I haven't resolved today. Here are the things that I feel like I just can't resolve today. There, there are times in the evenings where the, that little list of here are the things that feel like they're out of control. I'm like, here are the list that, you know, if you've ever driven, uh, if you ever like driven in, on like ice or snow and you, and you begin to slide on ice in your car, I've only done it once, and I only did it for about 15 feet. I'm from the Mississippi Delta, so it doesn't really snow or ice all that often or get cold uh, that often in that kind of way. But there's just this moment uh, where the steering wheel doesn't work and the brake and the gas don't work, and it's like just powerless, and you're just moving for that, uh, that distance of time. Uh, and, of course, one time that was enough for me. I, I don't want to do it again. Uh, and so in the evening, I'm, I'm flooded with, uh, with thinking about every limitation, every undone thing, everything out of my control. And out of that births really an evening prayer, so, similar to Psalm 4. Here, God, here's everything out of my control, and I'm going to sleep. And you do not sleep, and you do not slumber, as Psalm 121 tells us. Nighttime is good for us. And I, I, we're starting there just to think through this. Uh, uh, Night falls and we truly need rest then. Uh, we're reminded in the evening as we go to sleep that we're not God. Uh, nighttime actually in some sense dethrones us. And we, it, it forces us to face the fact that we can't operate out of our own strength. It's something that God's given to us rhythmically daily to which we can come to the end of the day with a God who doesn't sleep or slumber. Say, God, you do the work. When I stop, you don't. When I stop accomplishing, you're, not, you're, you're still working. Your interest hasn't waxed and waned in my life simply because I have no cash value at night when I go to sleep. You are the source, you are, you are the sustainer, you are the energy, your energy, God, accomplishes all things and I'm simply living in it. So we face that at night. So we roll over into the morning, much like the Bible does, and there was evening and there was morning. 
the third day or the fourth day and so on. We roll in the morning and in the morning, my mind is flooded with everything for the day. So uh, I run, I run drop off for school. I drink coffee on the way, sh- the ha- shower and hygiene routine before going in the office. And then in, in like the morning as I'm brushing my teeth and in the shower, you know, if you ever seen like the BBC Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, when he goes into his mind palace, like that's what's happening in the mornings during that time. Like everything's moving around in there. I'm seeing everything that's, that's got to be done for the day. Every task, uh, yesterday's discussion that wasn't finished, unresolved ideas, missing part of the sermon still. There's big and small things to accomplish. And so, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this, and as I'm doing this, I'm texting myself, right? So I'm texting myself, here's the list of things to do today. My mind's going haywire. And then I begin to text my staff, and it's like 7.40 in the morning. And like, you know, so I'm texting them, and then when I get in the office, like our, our minister of music says to me, hey, you, you went to your mind palace this morning, didn't you? I was like, yeah. So I sent you a lot of texts about all we're doing, and so... So I think about everything I have to do for the day, and for a moment, it just overwhelms me, right? Maybe it's you. Now, I have a confession to make to you. I'm going to tell you something that I've never told a single person before. That's probably not true. But um, I have this thing. Like I, I, I'm an adult male, I'm pastor of a church, somewhat of a respected community member, uh, I, think, I think people do come to me and approach me for wisdom and for guidance as part of, the, part of the role. And I feel like I live a lot of my life where I'm like trying to put it all together, right? I'm trying to live a put-together life. But there's this one thing that I've, I've done since I was a child that I just can't get past doing. I am a gag coffer. You know what I'm talking about? Is that you? You smell a smell. You see a sight. Um and you gag cough, I do it. And it's so embarrassing. And like our small group recently found this out because somebody said something disgusting. And, uh, you know, like, and they're like, whoa, I didn't know you would do this. But it's, it's out of control. Uh, and, and really it's in response to sensory kind of things. Like, so see a sight, smell a smell. It happens pretty much every day because you had to brush your tongue, right? And that's just a painful experience. And so you gag cough. Um, and it's not for everything, it's not for every little thing, but you know, if I was to say like a yearly average of how often I gag cough, it's, it's about 365 times a year. Uh, so once per day. And, and really the only non-sensory thing that causes that would be uh, just a touch of anxiety. And it's usually in the morning, as the things are piling up, as the day's staring me in the face, you just give a little gag cough or two, get it out of my system. Uh, in the body, body resets in some ways, and I'm ready to conquer the day, put in the work, make the challenges, do all the things for the day. Okay, so all that to say. Let's think about evening and think about morning. And I'll ask you the question, how do you feel in the evening? And how do you feel in the morning? God's design for our life is rhythmic. Every evening and every morning, there's rest, then there's work. There's hours of unconsciousness, succeeded by hours of action. And then consider, as you think about evening and about morning, consider how those feelings, consider how those rhythms that God has given you might invite you into something God wants to teach you. It might invite you into a healthy prayer life or healthy patterns for your prayer. It might open up for you. If you think about morning, evening and morning, it might open up to you a way God wants you to live for your good and for his glory. So Psalm 5, Psalm 5 is a prayer for the morning. It is a prayer for starting the day. Psalm 5 is a vigilant prayer. It is an awake prayer preparing us for the day. It expresses a desire to operate from the kind of God-given clarity 
and inner wisdom that makes our work and our lives fruitful and redemptive. So we wake up with this prayer. Uh, so as we look at it, I'm, I'm not breaking it down, you know, in the sense of like explaining every line. Sometimes the Psalms are like a good joke. Like if you have to like break down a joke and explain it, it sort of kills it. Uh, Psalms are to be read and then to be lived into. So we're just going to read it a little bit together. We're going to respond a little bit together. I'm going to invite you in a few things. Um, so as we think about this, let me give you, I'll give you four big headings. But this morning prayer is for joining, for mourning with you, for seeking, and for enjoying. This prayer is for joining, mourning, seeking, and enjoying. So let's talk about joining God in our morning prayers. So verses one through three, let me read them to you again. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So Eugene Peterson, uh, the one who, uh, the late Eugene Peterson, he translated the message version of the Bible. He has a little book. It's a wonderful book. It's called Answering God. Uh, the psalm is uh, subtitled The Psalms as Tools for Prayer. He says this, the controlling center of this morning prayer is verse 3. O Lord, in the morning thou dost hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for thee and watch. And so the image here is bringing a sacrifice in a rhythmic repetition from the evening prayer to the morning. The work of God begins while we are asleep and without our help. He continues to work through the day in our worship and obedience. A sacrifice is the material means of assembling a life before God in order to let God work with it. Sacrifice isn't something we do for God, but simply setting out the stuff of life for him to do something with. Now, so we think about a morning prayer, and we think about joining God in the morning, there has to be a Copernican-like shift inside of our minds and inside of our hearts. Like, so this, this Copernicus model, right? Like you think about it in, in history and science and all this kind of thing, there was a shift in thinking from the old model that had the earth as a stationary point in the center of the universe, right? That was the Ptolemaic model. Then the Copernicus comes along and we move to our understanding now, a heliocentric model with the sun as a central place with, uh, which, around which the solar system orbits. So if, this morning, if, if you're not a, not a Christian yet, or if you're a new Christian, this sort of shift, when we think about our lives of joining in what God is doing, this is a necessary shift for all of us to make. It's in, our, in the, how we see our lives and how we see our significance and how we see our purpose. We are joining God. It's a movement in our understanding in which we think of ourselves as the primary workers and God as the glad helpers, that, the glad helper that makes our day worthwhile. God is not the red bull that gives us wings, if we want to say it that way. And perhaps we've even been guilty if we're, we've committed ourselves to a morning quiet time. Uh, you may have been guilty of, of doing this. You know, I want to get my day started right. So what do I do? Get a quiet time. I want my day to go right today. So what do I do? I have a quiet time. I want, to, I, want to, I want to give God what God deserves so God will do this for me. I, and if I don't give God what God deserves in the morning, God won't do this for me. But it's different than this. God is the worker. We shift our minds thinking God is the primary worker. He is the source. He is the sustainer. His energy and his plan are what's most important, and we join in with that. It's Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' righteousness that I'm joining into. 
And so a day is the basic unit of God's creative work. Evening is the beginning of that day. So that the Hebrew understanding of evening, then morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of God's grace. Like, so again, we remember Genesis chapter 1, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. So we go to sleep, and God begins his work. As we sleep, he develops his covenant. We wake, and we are called out to participate in God's creative action. We wake into a world we didn't make. We wake into a world, into a salvation that we didn't earn. In the evening, God begins without our help, his creative day. In the morning, God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work he initiated. So a morning prayer necessarily begins with what we did in the evening, with an evening prayer, as we've talked about this already. In the evening, we loosen the grip of our control over life with rest. So it dethrones us, but it also turns our hearts that we might begin worship in the right kind of way. Evening rest also dignifies us that we are creatures in a world that God created. This is who he is and this is who I am, we say to ourselves in the evening. And then we sleep. There's holy space given to us in the evening as we await waking up for nourishment and for joy and for understanding both that here are our gifts in life, but also here are our limitations in life. This is who God is, this is who I am, and this is who I'm not. So ask this question as we wake up and join God with a morning prayer. What exactly has God been doing while you were asleep? What is the work of God? So just think simply with me. Nothing too deep here. What is the work God's been doing? Tell me, tell me about his redeeming heart. It hasn't slept while you slept. Tell me about his redeeming plan that hasn't stopped while you stopped. Tell me about his redeeming work. There, if you, if you look at the end of your Bibles, Gen, uh, Genesis, that's the wrong direction, Revelation 21 and 22, you see a, a, a new heaven and a new earth. You see all things renewed and cleansed. You see a life where uh, God is at the center. There are no more tears and no more mourning because the former things have passed away. That's the world God is working toward. So it's, it's good for us to read that. It's good for us to know that. Every, every bit of God's work is working toward that. And so I think to myself, there's sort of a gentle rebuke built in to joining God. And I think so often, you know, like it's, you know, I guess like you, we just confess. So often we think, okay, I, I didn't finish making a name for myself yesterday. I didn't finish taking something from someone else. I didn't finish getting to the top. I didn't finish building a kingdom of living for myself. I didn't finish cultivating a friend group of only people who are up to my standard. I didn't reach the summit, the American dream. Those are not, those are not great places to start. What is God doing? What is Jesus working? We don't have to invent stuff to do for God to help us. As we think about this sacrifice, we wake up this morning, we sacrifice to God. We just arrange the pieces of our lives to join in with him. So what has God been doing? Oh, isn't he father to the fatherless? That's what he's been up to. Isn't he the protector of widows? That's what he's been doing. 
that Jesus is in his work. He doesn't need to be a friend of sinners. Yeah, that's what he's working on. A lifter of those who are humbled. An open hand, and we're told in the Psalms, to satisfy all who are hungry. In Matthew 25, we find Jesus tell a parable about separating sheep from goats. And there's, there's a, there's a you know, huge part in the middle, possibly you're familiar with it, you're likely familiar with it if, if you've read through the Bible. And he talks about feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting, the, visiting pr- prisoners. And Jesus will say in that moment, because people say, Jesus, when did we see you there? Like, when, did, when were you there when we were feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting prisoners and offering something to drink to the thirsty? And Jesus would say something like this, what you did for the least of these, you did for me. And there's a note that we have to make there that, that Scripture clues us in at times that there are, there are times and places in life where the veil between heaven and earth is razor thin. And one of those moments are moments of prayer. But there are these other moments, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoner, and feeding the hungry. Jesus tells us the veil between heaven and earth is so razor thin there, and what you did for them, you did for me. So we join him in the morning. Second, we want to think about with a morning prayer, morning in the morning. So morning with the you, as in lament or as in confession or however you want to think of it that way. So this is verses four through seven. Let me read it again to you. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple and, and, in, the, in, and in, <laughs> in, the fear of, in the fear of you. Sorry, I can't read this morning. So, uh, the psalmist David makes an appeal, and then he makes a contrast, right? So that's what we get into here. So he's saying, give ear to my prayers, consider my thoughts, give attention to my cries, Lord, so as I'm joining in with you, I'm going out on a limb with my life. I'm getting into it. I'm battling. I'm going out in this territory that I join you in this I can't do it by myself kind of territory. And then he makes this contrast. And at first you, you think, well, what is he doing here? Like, you know, so, so give ear to my cries. And in verse 4, for you are a God who does not delight in wickedness. And evil may not dwell with you. And it seems like at a, in a moment he's just sort of piling on to just people that are outside religion or outside church and saying, well, you, listen to me because I'm inside and I'm in your temple and I'm praying and I'm seeking you. And in an instance, you, your mind may jump over all the things like you think are negative about religion, right? My mind goes to Luke chapter 18 and another parable that Jesus told, a parable of a, a tax collector and a Pharisee, and, and so your mind may jump here. He says, he also told this parable. This is uh, chapter 18 of Luke, verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That was his prayer, right? You're like, is this, is this what David's doing? Hear me, God, because I'm not like those people over there. I would say it's the exact opposite of that. We'll keep reading the parable. But the tax collector standing far off 
will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the psalmist here in Psalm 5 does say, God, remember how you feel about wicked, evil, boastful liars? And he says, and remember how you feel about me? I'm in your temple. I'm bowing down my face in worship. But he's not like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Not at all. In fact, his appeal is rooted in God's grace and God's character. The psalmist stands in contrast to evil people for sure. And of course, we're reminded in Scripture that God doesn't side with the wicked. God is the kind of God who leverages his strength to lift the weak. So God is a kind of God who is against bloodthirsty robbers of life. Let's not get over that part of it. God's heart is on display in the gospel that Jesus Christ would come and lay down his life so that others can live. That is in contrast to those who live by the reverse gospel that says, you die so I can live. So there's a remembrance of, of God's character, but there's also a remembrance here of God's grace. David recognizes that his access to God's presence arises out of God's grace. He says, I'm here. You can see it in verse 7. But I, through the abundance of what? Your steadfast love, I enter your house. Your hesed love, as, as the Hebrew word would be in the Old Testament, this covenant loving kindness, as the Jesus Storybook Bible. Do you guys know the Jesus Storybook Bible? If you don't have a copy of it, get a copy of it. It's worth reading for every person. The, the kind of love, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So David says, because of that kind of steadfast love, I've entered and you hear my prayer. And so there's an appeal to rescue me now. Psalm 5 calls on God to help in the midst of struggle with deceitful and dangerous enemies. Rescue me, the psalm says, from evil oppressors. And of course, the New Testament comes along and Jesus and the apostles show us an even deeper, uh, a, a new depth for this kind of prayer. To rescue me from evil oppressors. So surely there will be enemies of the cross and of Jesus. There will be injustice to call attention to and to even, even call out those who do injustice. And we're all longing for a day when God will end all injustice, all bloodthirstiness, and all who bless the bloodthirsty, the curtain will come down and it will be over. But we think about it, like as, as the New Testament brings us to new depths with this song, Paul draws from Romans chapter 3, uh, draws from this psalm in Romans chapter 3, a section of scripture that's actually meant to expose every last one of us. So this is Romans 3, 12 through 18. Uh, Paul's making this grand case that Jews and Gentiles alike, no one is righteous, not even one. No one stands on their own record. And because uh, Romans 3, 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God 
before their eyes. And so let's think about this. As we think about praying this kind of prayer in the morning, when Christians pray this prayer, God, rescue us from the evil oppressors. God answers that prayer. But God answers back with yes, but it's different than what we think. God says, yes, I will rescue you from the evil which holds you captive in the depths of your heart. You know, in Jesus's life, we're told a story about when Jesus enters Jerusalem during Holy Week and he enters with much fanfare. There are shouts of celebration and rescue. There are people in the streets crying, Hosanna. And Jesus does an odd thing. This, this crowd that stirred up for his entrance into the city, the crowd that stirred up so that Jesus might come in and overthrow the evil oppressor Rome, right? He rides in on a donkey in the middle of their cries for a strong military Messiah. And it's like their cries, their Hosanna cries are, are misdirected. Deliver us from evil, but they mean deliver us from the evil Romans. Deliver us from the evil enemies out there. Deliver us from our captors, from our dream killers, from our life stoppers out there. And they think Jesus is out there bringing men back from the grave. Surely next he's coming into the city to overthrow Rome. But Jesus comes in as a rescuer king that is so different. And it's, it's, he comes in and Jesus riding in on a donkey and what Jesus does at the end of the week as he goes to the cross, it, it just redirects our attention. And so often we're like, there's, God, there's an en enemy that's destroying us over there. So come on in, king. Let's go get them, right? Jesus rides in the city. And Jesus comes into the city to rescue the people from evil at its fullest depths. Throwing off Roman oppressors is not nearly deep enough. There's sin and death that touches us all. Death is the great oppressor. Death is the great dream stopper. Death is the great war machine. And death has a power. And so Jesus comes in to be this kind of rescuer king, the one who rescues from death and all of death's hold over our lives. And so if we cry out to God, God, rescue us from our evil oppressor, God says, yes, I will rescue you at the depths of your heart. The cross of Jesus is the answer to this cry for rescue. By Jesus hanging on a cross and dying on a cross, this is the answer to this prayer. So in Psalm, in Psalm 5, when we pray, we pray through the lens of the cross. So yes, there's a celebration as we pray this prayer. God has done it. Uh, Jesus on the cross has defeated sin, death, and hell. He's done it. He's, he's, uh, he's making all things new, even us. God has found a way to end all evil without ending us. But also in this prayer, there's honest reflection. To be a Christian means that you have to stop saying that the real problem, the real evil is over there, or over there, or over there. And you say as a real Christian, the real evil, which I need rescue from first, is here. It's me. So to mourn our sin means we are engaged in the rehabilitation of our heart and soul and disposition. We say, I'm not chiefly a victim. I'm not chiefly an innocent bystander in all this. I am chiefly the problem. And human beings do not readily admit their brokenness, 
But when they do, the kingdom of heaven draws near. Healthy Christians, true disciples of Jesus, get real about the fault within us. Once we get to a place of mourning, it becomes a path of comfort for God to us. The forgiveness of sin, the lifting of shame, the undoing of guilt and shame with the message of the gospel in our hearts washing us. And it sets a new path for our day. The two parts, joining God, mourning. At the beginning of the day, we're reminded of 2 Corinthians 7.10, that godly sorrow brings repentance, that leads to salvation, that leaves no regrets. And you can experience that today through Christ. Third, and we're getting, we're getting close to the end here. This prayer leads us to seeking the heaven down way. The prayer in verses 8 through 10 is, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. So we're seeking the heaven down way. There are two basic ways to live your life. You can live your life self up or heaven down. So one way, living self up. You start with yourself, ambitions, thoughts, achievements, contributions. You start with your life's work. You bless, you baptize them, you validate them, you aggrandize them. You take those and you stretch them upward to say that you matter, to say that you are not junk, to say that your life is not junk, that you are significant, that you found a calling and you found your greatness. That's self up. The other is heaven down. Jesus says about your life, that your life is to be lived heaven down. Jesus says that Eternal life is about entering into the kingdom. It's about entering into eternal life now. It's about entering into a life now that cannot be touched by death. It is to bring the life of heaven, that is to be part of the kingdom, it is to bring the life of heaven down into all that you do. Remember the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is to bring the life of heaven, the life of the age to come, the new creation in everything. It is to seek Jesus' righteousness and walk in it. It is to find the life of Jesus and to bend your life toward the words and the ways of Jesus. Now think about this. Uh, uh, Smith is kind of near the middle of our children. He's, he's uh, nine years old. He's a precocious child. He asks wonderful questions. And one day he asked this question, and I, I was just ready for it, you know. And he, he just said, he said, Dad, why does God... And he paused. And I'm like, all right, here we go. Here we go. All that training is going to be put to use now. And he started again. Why does Godzilla have to be so bad and tear stuff up? And I love this because like, he's like cut from like my mold in life. He's like, why can't he just be a giant lizard who tries to be careful? <laughs> and I love it. And I really didn't know the answer because I don't know how Godzilla is wired. So I looked it up. The internet is wonderful, isn't it? And I found this from Wikipedia. Godzilla is de depicted as an enormous, destructive, prehistoric sea monster awakened and empowered by nuclear radiation. He's fueled by basic predatory instinct. In some depictions of Godzilla, he fights alongside humans, but with no shared moral responsibility and no loyalty. So that's the answer to why Godzilla can't just be a giant lizard who is careful. And so I think about this, I think about Christians' life. Have you ever had someone ask you, or have you ever seen someone ask publicly, why are Christians the way that they are? And there are two ways to ask that. 
One way is not so desirable, and one way is the way that we want to be asked. One way is the way of accusation or criticism. It is, the, it is to reflect in the words that are attributed to Gandhi. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. We don't be asked that way. We don't want to be asked, why is the church the way that the church is? We don't want to be asked about churches who give people who are hurting already the church wound. And so in thinking about living, seeking the heaven down life or the heaven down way, we just say, God, free us from thinking that to have a significant life, to be great, we always have to be doing something that's religiously flashy, heavy-handed, headline-getting, spiritually showy, that's full of this like religious machismo thing. There is another way. There's another way for people to ask, why are Christians the way that they are? It's reflected in Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, there are two brothers who are disciples who are jockeying for position and greatness in the eyes of Jesus. And he directs them, redirects them and says, my kingdom is not like that at all. So this is, is Mark chapter 10. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we build up our righteousness, our way, our kingdom self up, it is always at the exclusion of others. It means that others always have to be thrown out. It means that the table will always not be long enough. The pie will never be big enough and grace will never be deep enough. But there's a way to live the heaven down life, to be faithful, sacrificial, loving, to go out and to find, to lay down so others can live, to mourn and to repent when we're not sacrificial and loving and kind and laying down our lives, to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice, who, who overcome evil with good and not with more evil, we think. To humbly walk the path with Jesus is, is to pray the prayer, God, send all of your grace down, all of your mercy down, all of your peacemaking down, all of your healing down. God, send all of your love down, send all of your forgiveness down, send all of your reconciliation with the Father down that can happen this side of heaven. God, send all the rescue down and we offer ourselves to be a part of that to which it goes out into the world. To live the heaven down way is simply to be humble, diligent, prayerful, grace-filled workers and evangelists. And we end here. Finally, this prayer leads us to enjoying God. And this is where it all hinges, enjoying God. So we note here at the end, verses 11 and 12, let me read them again to you. Can I stop for a second? I don't know, growing up in church, if anyone ever clued me in to the fact that all of life is about glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. I don't know if enjoyment was on the table. We served God, we loved God, we gave to God, we did things for God. I don't know if anybody ever stopped me and said, there is just a, an enjoyment of God that is yours. But it's here in Scripture. Verse 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor 
as a shield. So as God reaches down in our morning prayer to meet us with his grace, our hearts reach up in exultation. To exult, E-X-U-L-T, to exult is to enjoy, to relish, to take deep delight in someone. To exult is as God reaches down in his grace, it is to reach up in joy for someone. Exultation happens when your heart and your soul and your mind and your spirit, when your affections are elevated and set on fire as you find God to be your deepest treasure and your most enjoyable friend. Our relationship with God is not an exchange of ideas or goods. Our relationship with God is not a commitment to a discrete set of doctrinal truths, but a response to a personal God. And we begin our day with wonder in the gospel. The psalm leads us to Jesus because we think about these words at the end. What is it to dwell in the refuge of God? What is it to have God as your shield? It is synonymous with the gospel and what it renders in our lives. It is synonymous with being covered in God's love, to be robed in Jesus' righteousness. It is synonymous with being secure in the hands of God, where we can say in our lives now and our lives forever, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? God ultimately and finally and fully is your shield, is your refuge. You are covered. It means that even when you face death, that your life can't be touched by death. The very worst thing that can possibly happen to you in life simply delivers you as a Christian into the arms of the Father. It means that if resurrection is on the other side of death, that even the worst thing that can happen to you is the very best thing that can happen to you. That you can say in every situation, no matter how hard it is, how difficult it is, wherever it leads you, you say, you look at the situation in the eyes, you say, this too will end in life. And your heart and your soul and your affections are lifted. We know this through the one Jesus who laid down his life for us. It is because of his righteousness, not ours. It is because of his great love and not ours that we're able to rejoice, to take deep joy in God, and to exult even this morning as we gathered for worship. This is the key, that joy and enjoyment of God is built into the lives of those who live and move and have their being in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we rejoice in you. And among all things, our prayer first and our prayer simply is that our hearts and souls and affections would rise in joy, meeting your great grace in our lives. So be near to us as we continue in worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.